listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly masterclass interviews on topics to help you make your first or next step in business the right one. I'm your host, Alex Sanfilippo. Whether you're applying for a job, trying to land a new client, or even pitching your business to investors, each will require someone to have faith that you will succeed in your endeavors. My question is this, do you have what it takes for someone to bet on you? In today's episode, I am talking with Sunil Gupta about his incredibly impactful book titled Backable. In our conversation, Sunil shares the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. For links to resources that will be mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 085. And now here is my conversation with Sunil Gupta about becoming backable. Sunil, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm a huge fan of the show. Ah, thank you. I really appreciate that. Definitely means a lot coming from you. And I got to say, I thoroughly enjoyed your new book, Backable. You successfully accompanied inspiring stories with practical applications. Probably the best way I can put it. And that's that's a hard thing to do. So great work on this. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, when you're writing a book, um, you you know, I, I have found that people either write a book from the perspective of being an expert or uh, the perspective of being a seeker. And I definitely am not an expert. I'm a seeker. And I was trying to figure out how, how do these people have this mysterious quality of being backable? You know, when they go into interviews or they go into auditions or they go in to raise money, they seem to have this just ability, um, this, this X factor that makes us really want to rally around them, make a chance, take a chance on them. And, uh, and I, I, I had to know if that X factor could be learned because I needed it, not because I was an expert. So that's where the stories come from is really just like throwing yourself in the field, understanding who these people are, you know, whether it be Oscar winning producers or founders of iconic companies or celebrity chefs from Lady Gaga to Jeff Bezos to Kamala Harris, and just like really understanding what it was that made them backable. What were those moments when someone took a chance on them why did that happen? And how do we unpack that and learn something from it? Yeah, I think you're definitely the right guy to tell this story because you you just have so many unique stories of your own or people's lives that you've, you've been involved in. Uh, it's funny, I was going back to kind of highlight some of my notes to, to really focus in on what we want to talk about today. And I found myself going through and reading it again, just like because it, it's such great stories that you have in there. Oh, thanks. With that said, you mentioned some big names and things there. I think that when a lot of people hear the term backable, when they think about, okay, I need to get investors or I'm trying to get hired for a job even or trying to just attract a potential customer, they kind of think of somebody that's maybe really bold or outgoing or has a really witty personality maybe. Uh, Some would consider it to be almost a superpower, but you've made this, you've explained it in a way that's actually something people can learn. Am I right in saying that? I, I I hope so, you know, and I and I think the 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 reason I have confidence in that is because I am not one of those backable people. I mean, I really, <laughs> okay, really not. You know, I'm I'm an introvert by nature. Uh, we can't see each other right now, but if you saw me, you know, I look comically young for my age. Um, you know, and I always had a hard time, honestly, speaking up inside a room. You know, I, I was one of those guys who, if I got into a brainstorm session, you know, I was pretty quiet. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, and, and, and not to mention also, I, I, I've literally tanked, you know, major, major job interviews. I have, I have been rejected by countless numbers of investors. Um, and I really did write this book because I was trying to figure out like, what am I 
what am I doing wrong here? Or what is that quality? Because I knew that I, I was qualified, or I felt qualified at least. Um, and when it came to you know pitching ideas for my companies, I knew that it had something. I knew that there was there was something to invest in there. You know, it had it had the right ingredients, but I wasn't sharing it in the right way. And I needed to figure out what was I what was I doing wrong. Now I'll tell you a quick story. One of the stories that really kind of got me interested in this topic was uh, when Jack Dorsey was starting Square, the company Square. Yeah, this is maybe about a year in, um, and at the time I was working in at, at Groupon, and and I got recruited, or someone from the company reached out and said, "Hey, you should come in and and talk to us about a role." And um, you know, I was excited about it, and I was excited about it because I thought Square was an interesting idea, but I, I also I also was kind of a you know really interested in the idea of working with with Jack Dorsey. I felt like I learned a lot from him. Um, so you know, I I end up getting an interview with. Jack Dorsey himself, and oh, wow. I, I get into the room, and uh, and man, I, I I wish that I could tell you that you know, Alex. I wish I could tell you that I nailed that interview, but it was literally the it was literally the worst, oh, no. worst interview that I've ever <laughs> so sorry. in my entire life. And the and the, and the crazy thing is, it was not a tough interview. He he actually asked me a bunch of softball questions, and I remember, you know, he he, he was asking me questions like, you know, how do you think about product development? Pretty basic question, you know. Yeah. I, I'd spent literally ten years at that point in time, you know, working in product development. I'd written papers on product development. I'd given talks on product development. I'd led teams on product development, and yet somehow, when I was in the room answering the question, "How do you think about product development?" it came out like a jumbled mess, and 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 so and so I, I still remember you know, Dorsey's face, I mean, it, it went from this like smile to kind of almost neutral to almost confusion. And I just, you know, again, I was qualified for that, for that role. I know it, but I did not get that job. And I think we all have these Dorsey moments. I think they happen all the time. I think they happen inside classrooms. I think they happen inside auditions. I think they happen through these zoom screens I happen all the time. And I think if you can learn some of the things that I think I've learned through the process of writing this book over multiple years of, of seeing how people do this the right way, it can really increase your probability in these really key moments. And and if you can increase your probability of success in these really key backable moments, it can really just direct your career in a, in a completely different way. 100%. I couldn't agree anymore that the Dorsey moments, as you as you called it there, uh, we, we've all had moments like that for sure. But I will say this, the seven steps that you've laid out in this book truly do help. And it's a great framework to follow. And today, you and I actually picked out three before we start recording, decided on three of them that we wanted to really jump into because I just believe it'll add a ton of value to the creating a brand listener. So if you're ready, we'll go ahead and jump into those now. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. Yeah, let's start with step two, then, which is to cast a central character. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I found about this book is that there are concepts that, you know, in retrospect now, I look back in the months and I say, obviously, you know, this, this is really just makes a lot of sense. And yet somehow, even being an entrepreneur, uh, spending a bunch of years working in tech, even going to business school and law school, I didn't, I, some of this stuff just didn't, I didn't know, you know, and one of the things that I, I, I feel like was hidden, but in plain sight is that we as human beings, we connect emotionally to people, not to data. It, data is really important. 
Um, but I, what I think masterful storytellers do really well, and we hear a lot about storytelling now, like what does it take to be a good storyteller? Because it's such an invaluable skill. And I think the thing to know is that you know, a great storyteller doesn't get into a pitch room or an audition or an interview and, and, and say like, once upon a time, there was a, you know, a guy named <laughs> Alex. A right. storyteller is, is, is somebody who can, who can really mix style and story with substance. And you're kind of doing both. Um, but if you don't have any story and you just have substance, it's very easy to forget, um, especially if you're talking to somebody who hears substance all day, every day. It's really stories that end up sticking. And the person that really taught me this concept was, was Tim Ferriss. So Tim Ferriss, you know, I pitched Tim on my company, uh, my startup. It was, a, it was a baby startup called Rise at the time. And what Rise did is we, we, we matched you one-on-one with a private nutritionist right over your mobile phone. We were focused on people with diabetes and hypertension. And so when I pitched him, I pitched him with the data. I'm like, look, you know, diabetes is just massive, massive problem in growing, um, you know, millions and millions of people out there that aren't getting the care they needed. And, you know, and, and, and I think that that data definitely resonated, it landed, but I didn't have any real story along with that data. And so he shared something with me that was really surprising. Um, I hadn't heard this story before. Maybe, maybe Alex, maybe you have, but when Tim was writing the four hour work week, he pitched over 25 publishers and they all said, no, every single one of them. And this is a book that has now sold, you know, I think millions, if not tens of millions of copies. Right. But, but I mean, every single publisher he pitched said no. And so he had one of these moments that I think a lot of people go through where they're like, all right, well, do I give this up or, or is there something else I can do with it? And he got some advice from, from someone close to him to, to, instead of writing this book for a mass audience, what if you rewrote the book, but you wrote it with one specific friend in mind, one person. And so he gave it a shot. He literally started writing, you know, the first chapters with, I think he ended up using two friends who were going through a very similar journey of, you know, not being quite content with the work that they were doing and trying to figure out their sort of work world. And, but he had these, he had these, he had these friends in mind, very specific people. And what he told me was that when he started to write that way, it just became so much more emotional. It became so much more captivating. The writing became so much better. And so what Tim told me to do was to do the same thing with Rise. You know, there was a reason that I started this company. And that reason, I mean, I I was very passionate about, you know, the rates of diabetes and the rates of hypertension. But the fact is, the reason I started this company was because of one person. And that was my father. When I was young, when when I was 10 years old, my father had a triple bypass surgery. And, you know, he was in his early 40s, way too young for something like that to happen. And so, I, you know, I remember still leaving the hospital. And when they, when they sort of, you know, after having spent, you know, I began to spend like 10 days in the hospital. When we left, they gave us a couple of pieces of paper. And on those couple of pieces of paper were basically lifestyle changes, recommended lifestyle changes, all summarized in a couple of pieces of paper. And, and you know, it, it, had the, it had the sort of, Things you might expect, it was like, you know, exercise. Uh, and then when it came to food, it was like, eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. We were an Indian family. We didn't eat broccoli. We didn't <laughs> right. Eat 
that wasn't that wasn't part of our that wasn't yeah. part of our our, our lifestyle and and you know it was going to be very hard for us to completely like forget our culture in order to make my dad sort of healthy although we were sort of willing to take do whatever it took but the point is that we ended up working with a a, a dietitian um, insurance covered it you know and we we ended up working with a dietitian who ended up customizing our Indian diet to something that would really work and when that happened everything changed for us so. For me, it was like, you know, the rise story of, was my dad's story. The doctors had given him literally a few years to live and, you know, knock on wood, he, he's still alive today because he was able to get the access to someone who helped him transform his, his eating. And so could we do that for more people? And when I started talking about rise in that way, when I started to share that story up front, and then, and then after sharing that story, say, look, there are literally tens of millions of people inclining that are in my dad's situation today. It became a much more powerful pitch. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the pages of the book, you mentioned that during these pitches and during these presentations, we have to get closer to that central character instead of further away. Yeah. Although that's kind of against our minds, right? All of us want to go straight to the big number, the big stat, because you think that that's just going to have more punch than bring it down to something real that we can tangible, that we can see, that we can feel and understand on our own individual lives and in that level. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy as you start to, as you start to scale, it's really easy to kind of forget about that one person, forget that one person's story. Um, you know, and, and I think Groupon, you know, I worked at Groupon early on when it was, when it was just a baby startup, hadn't, hadn't raised a series A round yet. And, uh, and, and, you know, ended up leaving the company after it went public. Um, so got to see this really just massive growth. One of the stories that I, 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 I never forget though, is when I first was interviewing with the company and I went to go meet with the founder, uh, Andrew Mason. Um, and you know, I was expecting uh, for Andrew to really talk about the numbers, you know, I was really, I was expecting him to, to share with me sort of, you know, this was a company that was already starting to gain fast traction. And so I was expecting him to, to, to say, you know, Hey, we're going month over month at this rate. And this is what, this is what our numbers look like. And he did, he did share that, but that literally was, that was, that was more kind of a footnote. What was really important to him was he, you know, I, I still remember I was living in San Francisco at the time. I, I flew to Chicago for this meeting because that's where the startup was based. And we took a walk. And we walked around downtown Chicago and he would point to these different local mom and pop shops that were using Groupon. And what he was doing is he was telling me the stories of these local mom and pop shops. He would point to a bakery and he'd say, look, you know, that, that person who's running that bakery, I, I've gone and I've sat down with the owner. And, you know, this, this person, they started a bakery because they love baked goods. They love to bake, but they didn't start a bakery because they wanted, because they love to, to market or because they loved advertising. That stuff is all just kind of a, almost a, a necessity. But if we can make that job a little bit easier for them, then you know they can focus on what they love to do. They can focus on baking because that's, again, what they got into this for. And he was, it was those stories that he was sharing with me. And then by the way, you know, we're growing really fast. Like we think we have a hit on our hands. And that's kind of how the pitch sort of went. And it completely blew me away. I mean, I, I, I remember getting back on a plane to San Francisco and before I got on the plane, I called my wife and I was like, I, I have to, I have to work for this guy. I have to work here. But the problem, getting back to your point, Alex, is that like we, we ended up 
just scaling really, really fast. I mean, by the time I went back to San Francisco, uh, ended up leaving my job at Mozilla, we moved to Chicago. By the time all that happened, we had already scaled from one market to seven markets. And, you know, it was like seven different cities and it was growing really fast. And we started to really lose sight of that one person that we were trying to serve, like that one central character who was this local mom and pop shop. And eventually we started to focus more on the margins. Eventually we started focusing more on, you know, how do we go public as a company? Uh, and, then, and then when we went public, we started to focus on quarterly earnings. I mean, just all the things that come along with the progression of growing. And uh, when you when that happens, you know, I think that, you know, in our case, we really we, we really struggled to keep sight of our central character. And that, I think that's part of the reason that Groupon didn't live up to its potential. Yeah. And that's something like you're saying, it's easy to do. And I hope that the listeners today are really taking this to heart because it's such an important point, not just when you are pitching or when you're, you're trying to get investments, just in general, when you're thinking about your company, your business that you want to start, it's important to make sure that you keep the central character at your focus. And every time I do coaching in the podcasting space, I say the same thing. Who's your avatar? Who are you actually speaking to? Can you keep them the center of it? No matter how big it grows, doesn't matter if there's a million people listening or just a hundred, can you make sure that you keep that same person the focus? So I love that we've really been able to, to cover, cover this point because it's just such an important one. And of course, for sake of time, though, we do have to move on. So I'm really glad we got to cover that one. But yeah. we're going to jump to step three, which is to find an earned secret. Yeah, yeah. This is one of my favorites. And, you know, the, the, the term earned secret comes from a conversation that Ben Horowitz had with a group of interns that were, that were interning at his venture capital firm, um, Andreessen Horowitz. And, um, you know, and it was just one of these terms that was sort of just, I think, phrases that was sort of thrown out there. But when I heard it, I was like, wow, this is, this is, I mean, that's, that's, that's quite a way to put it. And, you know, what I, what I have learned is is that great ideas stem tend to stem from an earned secret it's a surprising insight it's something that you know most people don't already know and you know i think that that's really important because when you go to someone and you pitch an idea even if that even if that idea is hire me you know even if that idea is yourself oftentimes people are looking for things that they don't already know and if you can be the kind of person that is sharing with them something that they don't already know, even about their own industry, you all of a sudden, I think, take on an, a very new brand. Uh, you take on the brand of not somebody who is um, just checking the boxes, but you're checking. You're you, you sort of have the brand of somebody who a has unique information because you've kind of put yourself out there. And the second thing is that you kind of give off this hustle vibe. You know, again, somebody who who hasn't sat behind a desk to get the information that they have or the insights they have. But you've, you've done what I call going beyond Google. You, you, you've come up with things that are, that are not Googleable. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I got that one from, from a producer named Brian Grazier, who, you know, has produced a bunch of movies and he's, he's got something like 87, you know, Oscar nominations. And, you know, he's created some of my favorite shows as well, you know, but it's, it's unbelievable because I, when I, when I asked him like, Hey, what's the one thing, right? People pitch you all the time. What's the one thing that you're looking for? If you had to pick one and his thing was exactly that. Like, I want people who are giving me an insight that is not Googleable, you know, something that I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't already know myself. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story because I found this to be really entertaining. Um, Howard Stern, 
is you know, you know you know Howard Stern. He's mm-hmm. in, in, and you know, Howard Stern, in addition to just being like this this you know massive radio personality, he's also a best-selling author, and he's written a few different books. Uh, but he stopped about ten years ago. He stopped writing books. He's like, look, I've, I've already got a few bestsellers. I don't really need to do that. It's a lot of work. Um, I've already got a job. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to be writing books anymore. And this publisher named Jonathan Carp really wanted Howard Stern to write another book. And so he's he was he was you know he was he was pitching him over and over again over the course of years. He was going to Howard Stern's agents. He was saying like, how do I get this guy to write a book? And he's going about it with, you know, again, getting back to our last point, he's going back, he's going about it a lot by, by sharing with him the data, right? Like if you write this book, it's going to be a national bestseller, you know, it's going to do really well. But what ended up, what he ended up doing instead, eventually he's like, none of this is working. So what I got to try something new. What Jonathan Karp, this publisher did is he decided, look, his interviews are already out there. What if I actually just assemble a book? Like I actually just put it together myself. So one day, literally, Howard Stern gets a knock on his door, and it's it's Jonathan Carp. And you know, instead of saying, "Hey, I'd like you to write a book," Howard Stern, he actually hands him a book. He says, "It's done. I've I've, I've gone through I've gone through the interviews. I've edited them myself. I, you know, I had a team that was working with me, but like I was personally involved. And now here's a leather bound book for you. All you need to do is say yes, and we'll we'll give it out to the publisher. And of course, it ended up being a lot more work than that. But Howard Stern said something about that process. He said that he, he was intoxicated by the effort. I, I love that phrase. He, he, he yeah. was intoxicated by the effort that Jonathan Carp put into this. And I think if you can intoxicate people with effort, by going out there, putting yourself into the field, getting out from behind your desk, going out from going way beyond Google and finding an insight, finding a secret that people don't already know. It's a, just a, it's, it's a very hard thing to say no to. Yeah, it really is. You know, and I have to ask you to, to tell your own story in this because you have a great story when you were actually pitching an investor, how this actually came to life for you. I think that's how you actually found this point, yeah. uh, this step. I'd love for you to share that. Like you have to, I know we're like, we're always pressed for time on this podcast, but you've yeah, got to share yeah. that one. <laughs> no, I'm happy to. And I, I, it's funny because the story always makes me cringe a little bit because <laughs> I loved it, man. <laughs> I, I, you know, so the story is that I'm a first time as a first time entrepreneur, I was I was getting rejected by every investor that I pitched, every single one, and so I'm in this meeting with an investor in Palo Alto, and I could just tell that he was not interested. I, he was he was he was showing all. By that point in time, I had gotten so used to being rejected that I could tell when someone was 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 going to reject me, and and he and he had all the telltale signs. You know, he, he was checking his phone. He was you could tell that he was sort of he was he was not quite there with me. And I had this slide deck that I was presenting, and I could just tell I was losing him. So uh, what, ended, what ended up happening was that uh, we were we were about to wrap up. And I think he was he was cutting the meeting short because you know another meeting had arrived and he was he was like all right that, that meeting is going to be a lot better than this one so he was cutting the meeting short and as he was about to leave the room he I think he felt a little bit bad that he was cutting the meeting short and he looked at the slide that was up on the wall and the, the title of the slide was pilot customers because we had run a pilot program and so just out of curiosity one question he asked is. How did you find your pilot customers? How did you find those first customers? 
And there was a sophisticated answer to that question that I was used to giving, which was, you know, we ran Facebook ads and we were able to, you know, convert them at this rate and this is what we did. But there was also an unsophisticated answer that was more true. It was kind of how we found our first pilot customers, which was that I, I would go to Weight Watchers meetings and I would stand outside of Weight Watchers meetings and as people were walking into Weight Watchers meetings, I would say, hey, I've got a new app that is uh, you know, for people who are trying to lose weight, and um, I would love to show it to you. I'd love to demo it to you. And, uh, and so that's what I did. I stood outside of these Weight Watchers meetings all around the Bay Area and, uh, and, and, and found these original customers. And as I'm saying this to him, he is staring at me in a way that he hadn't before, tell that he has now put his phone away and he's like, wait, but let me get this straight. You stood outside of Weight Watchers meetings to, to, to recruit your customers. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I, that's what I did. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, I've totally lost him now. (laughs) You know, this is like the most unsophisticated non-techie thing possible. Um, But instead he literally sits back down and he's like, all right, tell me more, tell me more about this. So I walk him through the full story and I tell him exactly what I did. And this guy goes from being, again, on the brink of rejecting me to leaning in completely. And I later learned that like this thing that I would hide, this this method that I had used was, was actually the reason that investors got really interested in me as an entrepreneur because they saw, you know, I think they were they were so used to getting pitched by people who were doing their work from behind a desk. They were so used to to people who are kind of using these plug and play platforms to find their customers that they found it very intriguing when someone would actually get from behind their desk and get beyond Google and get beyond the normal tools and put themselves in the field and really kind of show some grit. I kind of got this reputation as somebody who was really willing to roll your sleeves up and, and that, you know, that matters a lot. I love that that you personally put yourself into the story. Like you put yourself into it. You fit in. It's not just data anymore. Now it's something that you're involved in. Like you lived it. You became what you were trying to do. And I, I love that story. I think it's so powerful. We'll get right back to today's episode. But first, can you do two things for me? First, if you're enjoying this episode, please share it on your social media or share it directly with somebody that you know that would also benefit from listening. Secondly, please visit creatingabrand.com slash free to join the Creating a Brand Inner Circle. This is where I share exclusive content, including online courses, how-to videos, and other resources focused on helping entrepreneurs go further faster. By doing these two things, you are helping me reach and serve more people. So thank you in advance for your support. And now let's get back to today's episode. I want to transition into step five, because I think there's an important point here as well, that most of the time people that you're, you're pitching to, again, whether it be customers, whether it be a job that you're trying to get, you don't always hear yes on the first time. In fact, especially like when you're actually looking for funding, it's, it's very rare that someone will say yes on the first time. Yeah. And that fifth step is to flip outsiders to insiders. Can you talk about this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, th- uh, this is, this is one of, I, I probably think about this step more than anything else, because, you know, I think we're so used to believing that, you know, we have to go into a, a room and present ourselves as someone who has it all figured out. That's how we get the job. That's how we get the funding. That's how we get people to say yes. But the reality is that people like to be involved in the creative process. And if you can do it in the right way where you're sharing just enough, 
where you have a substantive story, but you you leave some room for people to to you know put their own fingerprints on your idea or even on your career. What happens as a result of that is that you take these people who are outsiders in your life and you flip them into insiders. You know, one one of the one of the things that I've realized is that. Um, Oh, you know, let me just, I'll, I'll give you a great example. And then we'll, we'll kind of get into some more of the details of what happens when people say no. Um, you know, I'll take you back to the, the 1940s for a moment, which I, I know sounds kind of random, but in the 1940s, you know, marketers were very excited about instant cake mixes. Instant cake mixes were going to be the next big, big thing. And so, you know, really big brands put a lot of money into, you know, marketing these instant cake mixes. And when they launched, they were horrified to find out that these, these mixes were not selling. And, and they were, they were, they were, they were completely surprised because it was so easy. I mean, you know, baking was a big thing back then if you're a homemaker and, and, you know, all you needed to do was pour some water into the mix and put it in a pan and you got a, you got a freshly baked good. Why wouldn't it sell? And so they ended up getting this consumer psychologist, this guy named Ernest Degta, to go into the field and start talking to people, talking, going home to home, and actually figure out what, what, what exactly is happening here. And what he, what he found was mind-blowing. What he found was that these marketers, these, these, these brands, had made the process of making a cake too easy. They literally had removed they had removed the, the homemaker from the creative process because all they needed to do again is just add some water to some mix and put it in a pan and then all of a sudden they got to bake good. But, but then they didn't really have any pride in what came out of the oven. So what this guy, Ernest Dector, recommended is why don't you remove one ingredient, just one, and see what happens. And so they did. They decided to remove the egg. Before they had dried egg was part of the mix and they said now – uh, what's marketed again? But what you need to do is you have to buy a you know buy a fresh egg and crack that egg into the mix and stir it, right? And so now all of a sudden the homemaker has a role. You have a role in this process. And when you put it into the oven and when you take it out of the oven, you don't just feel like you were you were you know watching something happen. You actually feel like you had something to do with it, even if that was just cracking an egg into the mix. And it just took off. Instant mixes became a huge, huge sensation. And that was the 1940s. Since then, you know, researchers have really unpacked what was really happening here. And you know, in fact, there, there, there's a there's a, a couple of professors out of Harvard Business School who named this the IKEA effect, right? Which is that even if we create a piece of furniture that that is poorly built, if we make that piece of furniture ourselves, we place a high amount of value on it. Right. In fact, we place up to five times the amount of value on something that we help build than something that we simply buy. So getting back to your question, it's like, well, okay, how do I, how do I put that into practice myself? You know, again, when we walk into a room the temptation is to say like, I'm going to be the person who has it all figured out. I'm going to have all the details pinned down because that's what it takes, right? I want to be thorough. Yes, but no, you do want to be thorough in that you want to have all of your homework done and you want to have all of your research done and you want to have high conviction for your ideas. But if you come into a room and you share every single detail and you leave no room for the person on the other side of the table to be part of the process, then you're kind of just keeping them as an outsider. You're kind of keeping them at arm's length. So what I realized is that backable people will share just enough. They'll share, they'll share what an idea could be 
but not exactly how it has to be. And they'll kind of start to bring the person on the other side of the table into the process. They'll say say things like, you know, I've got, you know, two or three ideas on how distribution could work for this new product. Um, But I know that you've been involved with marketing a product just like this, you know, and I would love to hear your thoughts on that. And so what they're doing is they're bringing them into the idea. They're starting right. to, it's almost like, um, you know, metaphorically, they're sitting on opposite sides of the table, but, but physically they are, but you want it to almost feel like you're sitting on the same side of the table, looking at a problem together, looking at your screen together and really starting to collaborate with each other. Yeah. Do you find that this is just something that you, you do to kind of entice people or is it actually, you don't have to have it all figured out? Like what are you, like you really have these questions to people or is it, okay, I really know what I want them to do. They're just, I'm going to guide them there. How does that look for you? I think it's better if you don't actually have everything yeah. figured out, but Me I too. think it's very important that you know what you don't know. You know, I think people make a mistake when they, when they say, you know, I'm going to try to gloss over something that I don't know. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with it and I'm going to hope and I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that the person, you know, isn't going to bring that up. That's true for interviews. It's true for, you know, pitching for, for money. You know, one of the best pieces of advice that I got was from Reed Hoffman, uh, who's the founder of LinkedIn. And, you know, one of the things that he told me was that, yeah, he learned this early on as an employee when he was working at Apple is that when he was giving when he was pitching ideas or even pitching himself you know it, it, it never worked out well when he would sort of try to gloss beyond the objections to the idea when he focused purely on the strengths of the idea what he learned to do is to take the objections of the idea and to bring those up front so to walk into a room and to be able to say look you know here are a couple of things that I'm sure are on your mind and I've got some theories, but I don't have them figured out yet. So, you know, I, you know, one of the things that's probably on your mind is that you, you don't know how we're actually going to find our customers for this. We don't, we don't have a, you know, we don't, that, that's probably one thing that you're, you're, you're thinking about for this new business. Um, I'm going to share with you two to three theories, um, but I'm also going to be transparent in that. Like, I don't, I don't have the answers right now, but I'm actually hoping that you might have some thoughts on this. If done right, that can be an incredibly powerful thing. And it's very non-intuitive because, again, you know, oftentimes we believe that we need to walk into a room with the answers. But what I think is even more important than that is that every new idea, every new idea has its holes. Because if it, if it didn't, it probably wouldn't be a new idea. To know what those holes are, to know what you don't know, and to be able to, to, be able to articulate that, and also to be able to articulate that you spent some time really thinking about it. It's not like you're just like shrugging your shoulders. You really spent some time thinking about it. That can that can really be very powerful in getting in turning someone into an ally. Yeah, absolutely. I, this is my favorite point in the book. I have to say that really stood out to me. There's something you said in it that uh, your idea doesn't have to be bulletproof to be backable. And I just think that that's such a relieving thing for people to hear the, the entrepreneurship space, because I think so many of us, we think it needs to be really, really sharp, really perfect before we do that. And at one point, I missed out on an investor when I was doing some some work in real estate, and it was because I waited too long. I waited for it to be perfect. I had to fill every little hole before I could do that. Yep. I would have been better off doing what you talked about at the end of this chapter was when you get feedback from people and like, ooh, that one idea, that's not going to work. You should try this, is to actually take that feedback and show that you took action on it. Yep. And I think that if many of us just did that, we said, okay, it's good enough. It's ready. Someone could back this. And if they give you feedback, it doesn't work out, take action on that and do something with it. And it really 
it, it would really help you out in the long run. And eventually you'll, you'll find what you're looking for, the backing that you need from just doing those actions. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's such a great point. I'm, I'm so glad, so glad you picked up on that because I think about it a lot too. You know, we don't, typically we don't win people over in a single conversation. Mm-hmm. That very rarely happens. It, it doesn't happen in one conversation, but really through a series of interactions that build trust and confidence. And, you know, that that's even true for, for jobs. You know, even, you know, there, there are so many stories of people who don't get the job on the first time, but have, they master the follow-up and they keep in touch with the person who said no, and eventually they get the job or they get an even better job. It's certainly true with funding. You know, a lot of investors that said no to me ended up backing me later on. But but what you do in between really matters. And and so, you know, I, I think it's a couple of things that are very, very important. Number one is to really understand why, why they said no. And to do it in a way that really seeks to understand. You know, you're not you're not just this isn't like, gosh, why did you pass on the idea? It's more like, hey, I really love to learn. Like I'd love to learn more about what it would have taken for this to have been a yes. And 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 to really if asking that question in a very sincere way, it's amazing how many people don't ask that question. I mean, literally, how many times have you heard of somebody who got rejected by an investor or who got told no by by a job by a job opportunity, and then went back to that person and said, "Hey, totally get it, not not trying to change your mind, but I really love to understand a little more about why." And um, and it's amazing. I mean, not everybody is going to say yes. To giving you the that information, some people will be like, "Oh, you know, just the right fit." But some people will, and that information, if you're open to it, is just gold. And yeah. even more, what's even more than that is that if you can then somehow go back, find a way to go back to that person, it doesn't have to be right away, but going back to that person after you've had a chance to somehow use the feedback they've given you. So you know, in my case, uh, people said, "Hey, we just don't believe that people are going to." Um, stick around with Rise. We just don't know. Like, you know, we don't, this is, this is an early product. You haven't had customers for that long. We just don't know. And so, you know, I had to go back and really understand like, all right, well, what does our retention really look like? And then I went back to them and said, Hey, like this, this was the feedback I got from you. These are the experiments we ran. This is how long we've been at it now. And I want you to know that I listened to you and I want you to know that we got some new data on it. And that ended up flipping this conversation. So um, I, I've heard literally Alex, so many stories like this, so many, where, where people were told no, they found out why, and then they revisited later on, letting them know that A, I listened to you, B, I incorporated it, and C, here are the results of me incorporating it, can, can, can be an amazingly, amazingly powerful way to turn someone into a backer. Absolutely. I love this point, man. I'm telling you what, I'm really glad we decided to stick with three of your seven points because uh, <laughs> there's no way we could have gotten through more of this. But uh, I'm definitely going to encourage the listeners to grab a copy of this book. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes and all that because the other four points are just as great as these three. And um, they're missing out on some great stories and some actionable steps if they don't pick it up, of course. But uh, before we close out today, Sunil, I want to ask, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? Well, you know, Alex, actually, I would love to hear, like, I think everybody... I mean, everybody has a backable moment, but everybody. And I think that there's, that we, well, we, I think we can all point back to someone, whether that's a school teacher or that's somebody who was in an early job, uh, could be a parent, could be a family member, someone who, who really sort of took a chance on us. And, and you know, I, 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 as, a, as a listener, I'd love to hear yours. You know, what's your, is there a backable moment that you can share yeah. with us? 
Wow, I've, I've never had a guest do this before. So first off, I, I'm, I'm humbled. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, yeah, my backable story, the one that I'll share, because I don't think I've actually ever shared this one with the audience. But uh, years back, I, I'd been in aerospace for a very long time. And I knew I wanted to break out of that space. I wanted to get into to blogging, podcasting, and talking about entrepreneurship. These were things I was really passionate about. And I remember at one point, I decided to start trying to speak because everyone was like, Alex, you're pretty, you know, you can speak pretty clearly, give, give it a shot. So I went to a conference called FinCon. And reached out to the CEO because I had not done this before. I didn't even know how to really fill out an application they were asking me to do. I'm like, hey, I just kind of explained my story. I'm like, hey, here's where I'm at. And I know that I can really help other entrepreneurs that are in similar spaces. And for me, it was always, how do I avoid the busyness? And I got stuck in that early on. I just couldn't seem to get past the email and then the social media and all the, the little things you have to do. And I couldn't focus on the priority work. But when I finally overcame that, I realized I started seeing results really quick. And I was doing everything I could to help all the other entrepreneurs do that. And so I just pitched it to him. I just was like, hey, listen, his name is PT. I can throw him on the spot here. And I was like, hey, listen, PT, like I, I, I know that I can add this value. And I just really explained my heart behind it. I didn't have a, a pitch. I didn't have a slides. I didn't have anything. I was just like, I, I'd love the opportunity to speak to your audience. And I don't know if you're familiar with FinCon, but there's yeah. literally thousands of people sign up to speak at it. And they Big accept conference. Yeah, except 100 or 200. And he accepted me to speak about entrepreneurship. Wow. And I was a guy with just not a lot of credibility in this space at that point. But he took a risk on that. And Ever since then, it just lined up other conferences. I got opened up to, he introduced me to other conference leaders. And because of that, I was able to, to continue to speak at more and more conferences. And ultimately, it led to me launching my startup, Podmatch, because I just found that need at one of these conferences while I was on a stage, just polling the people in the audience. Wow. Um, so I'd say that's really my backable moment. That really was like a chain effect to where I am today. That's an amazing story, man. Here's the question. Have you ever gone back to PT and asked him why he took a chance on you? No. I need to do that, don't I? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm just curious. I mean, you know, one of the things I learned from this book, and I, I think this is true for, I, I, have, I feel this way, is that oftentimes we don't, you know, for, for being so metric driven as, you know, professionals and entrepreneurs, we're always sort of trying to understand the impact of our work, right? Because we want to make an impact on the world. One of the things I'm coming around to is that oftentimes we have no idea the impact we are making. Um, and we're likely making a much, much bigger impact on the world than we even know. And it's because of stories like yours, like what you just shared. You know, this guy PT changed your career, and he may not even know that. You know, I, and and it's 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 a pretty remarkable thing to reflect on. I, I still remember with with Rise. You know, Rise. We ended up selling Rise, and it was a good outcome. I think our investors were happy, the employees were happy. It was a, it was a good outcome. But I always sort of kind of when I signed the papers to sell Rise, I always felt like, hey, you know, I wish I wish this could, I, I really felt like this could have been more. You know, I signed it with mixed feelings, with mixed emotions. Um, and I still remember a few months after uh, we, we sold um, to a great company called One Medical. And I was working there at the time and I went to a conference. Um, you know, it was kind of like the, the almost the healthcare version of FinCon. And, um, and one of the guys who was speaking on the panel uh, was running a mental health startup, which at that point in time was taking off. And it, it helped thousands of people with, with mental health issues. And it was really, it was a really important, meaningful company. And I really admired this company. And, um, I'm sitting there and somebody on the panel, so, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in the audience, that guy had no idea I was in the audience. And someone asked him, said, said, Hey, what inspired you to create this company, this mental health startup? And he said, you know, um, you know, there was a few things, but one of the companies that inspired me was a company called Rise. Oh, wow. And he had no idea that I was sitting there 
in, in the audience. And, um, and I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I, obviously I didn't create a mental health startup. That wasn't my company. Um, but if I wouldn't, if I wasn't sitting in the audience to hear that, I'd have no idea that, you know, I had some small part in, you know, helping this come to fruition. And, and I guess my point is that again, like there's so many things that we impact every conversation we have, everything that we put out into the world, it may not actually reach the outcome that we had in mind. It may not hit the OKR. It may not hit the metric, but there's someone else out there who's paying attention to that. And that person is being influenced by our work. And if the work that they do is influenced by what we put out into the world, then somehow their impact is our impact as well. It's a, just an important thing that I think to just keep in mind as you as you as you create and as you build your brand. Man, that's such a powerful way just to, to end this episode, Sunil. I, I really thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's just a beautiful way to to end this and for people just to think about it. Like your creativity can help other people express theirs as well. And it's just a chain effect of really just adding value to the world. And that's personally what I'm all about. That's what my my life is built upon is adding value to others. So. I want to say thank you for what you've done and just for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thanks, Alex. I really enjoyed it. This is a great show and, and I look forward to the next one. This interview was one of my favorites that I've ever done here on the Creating a Brand podcast. And fun fact about Sunil, this was actually his first ever podcast interview. He's a natural. I would have never guessed it. A few hours after recording this episode, Alicia, my wife, and I were sitting down to watch Shark Tank. And as I was watching, I reflected back to the points that Sunil made during this episode, and I quickly spotted some trends. The people that were getting the best offers were the ones that were truly backable and living out the points that Sunil talked about during this episode. This stuff works. Sunil, thank you again for being a guest and sharing your story with us today. To pick up a copy of Sunil Gupta's book, Backable, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 085. Thank you as always for listening, and I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week. Music.